And uh, the chapter heading I have in this translation is the fertility of Zion. God's uh, church, looking ahead though at this point to the uh, future of God's church. And starting in verse 11, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal and your entire wall of precious stones. And all your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. In righteousness, you will be established. You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror, for it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work, and I have created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Would you turn then please to Revelation chapter 21. As I mentioned last week, uh, we have some uh, sermons on the nature of heaven. And the last couple of chapters of Revelation are of course uh, very relevant to that. Although there are those who understand the book of Revelation as having only to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. Chapter 70, I think that interpretation pushes it a little bit. Uh, so we read Revelation 21, the whole chapter. We'll look at the whole chapter together. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And names were written on them, which are those of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. And the material of the wall was jasper. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honour of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And of course we could uh, go into much detail about uh, many of those verses, but uh, this morning we look at the uh, overview of this passage and what it teaches us in the main about the nature of heaven. Covenant people of God, as I mentioned last week, there's an awful lot of speculation about the heavenly life. I pointed out last week that one of the best ways for us to avoid that speculation and to understand the nature of this heavenly life, what lies ahead of us, is to ask what are the covenant promises of God? Throughout the scripture, what are the covenant promises of God and how are those promises going to be fulfilled? How are they fulfilled in Christ and how will they be fulfilled or consummated when Christ returns? But there's another way of coming at this subject, and that is to ask the question, how does heaven return us to the Garden of Eden? How does heaven 
restore us to paradise. In what sense is heaven paradise restored? For after all, the movement of the Bible, if you look at the, uh, the, the flow of the teaching of the scripture, the movement of the Bible is from Eden to Eden restored, from paradise, Genesis 1 and 2, through to paradise restored, Revelation 21 and 22. Now, of course, that's, these are things that are hard for us to visualise. It's hard for us to visualise what it was like for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And it's hard for us to visualise what it will be like for us in heaven because it's so vastly different than what we now experience. We do not know what it is like and it is hard for us even to imagine what it is like to live in a world where there's no death, to live in a world where there's no sin. Because the sin and the misery of this world has permeated our lives to such an extent, even as Christians. Nevertheless, the Bible does give us teaching and it does give us information about what life was like for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And it does also give us information about the heavenly life and part of the way it does that is to say that the heavenly life is like the life that Adam and Eve had before the fall, only it's better. And similarly, another way that the scripture approaches this is to say that it is like the life that God's Old Testament people had in Jerusalem, the holy city with its temple, with its priestly system and so on. It is like that Old Testament worship. It is a new Jerusalem, only better. A better creation and a better city. Those are our two points this morning. A better creation and a better city. In the first place then, I'd like to point out that before this new world comes in, this is something we looked at a little bit last week too, before this new world comes in, the old world has to be dissolved. And we referred last week to 2 Peter chapter 3, which certainly talks about that disillusion of the old, uh, old world. John sees a new heaven and earth because the first heaven and earth have passed away. And the Apostle Peter puts that in terms of fire and the melting of the elements, the breaking down of this present world order. But the main thing in that for us, the main point in it is not the dissolution, not the melting of elements, not those physical things that may happen at the end of this world. The main interest for us is the removal of the barrier between God and sinful man. This is the, uh, the restoration of an Eden-like intimacy with God and man that comes at the end when that barrier between God, a holy God, and a sinful man, when that barrier is removed. Now, this comes out in the uh, text, and uh, it is true that there is some debate about the meaning of such things, but it comes out in verse 1 in this, this uh, little expression that there will no longer be any sea. And commentators argue about what the sea represents there. Some people think that the sea 
uh, prone as it is to storms and to wildness, represents, it symbolises the wildness and the chaos of sin and rebellion against God. And that's a possibility. Others, though, point out, and I personally think this is the, uh, the better explanation, that the sea is a reference back to the Sea of Crystal. We sing about that, by the Sea of Crystal. The Sea of Crystal referred to in Revelation 4, verse 6, which is a kind of floor that separates heaven and earth in John's vision. Whichever way you take it, as the sea representing the forces of chaos and evil in opposition to God, or the barrier that separates heaven and earth, which appears as a sea of crystal looking down from a heavenly perspective, whichever way you take it, the removal of the sea represents the removal of the sin-caused separation between God and man. And that is a far more important fact to us than the fact that elements may melt and the the material stuff of this world may be changed, dissolved and reorganised. And this is not the only way in the text that this uh, new nearness of God to his people is stressed. In verse 3 we read that the tabernacle, the tabernacle of God is among men. He, as it were, pitches his tent. That's what a tabernacle is, it's a tent. God pitches his tent in the midst of his people. God with us, Emmanuel. And those of you who've been on camps in uh, tents, stayed in tents, perhaps at Tonsilnui camps or uh, uh, national camp or... uh, other camps that we have in the churches, the youth camps and so on, where sometimes people stay in tents. You know what it's like to be often crowded together. The tents are usually fairly close to one another and you have a lot of close contact with other people when you go on that kind of camping environment and staying in tents. And here this picture is that God is so close to us that he pitches his tent in the midst of his own people. And that's spelled out for us even more in verse 3. He will dwell among us and we will be his people. That's more covenant fulfilment language. But it's not only harking back to the covenant, it also reminds us of what we find in the early chapters of Genesis, the intimacy that Adam and Eve had with God as they walked and they talked with God in the cool of the evening representing the, the, close, the wonderfully close fellowship that man had with God before the fall. Okay, then how is it better? What is to come in the new world, how is that better than what Adam and Eve had? If you've got close fellowship with God, you can actually walk and talk with him and see some manifestation of his glory. How can it be better than that in heaven? Well, it is better because it is in Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve, close as they were to God before the fall, had no need of Christ as mediator because they hadn't yet sinned. The Lord Jesus Christ, we know, is closer to God than anybody else because he is God and he sits at the right hand of God. He is closer to the Father than Adam and Eve ever were, even before the fall. And the point is that in him, in the new covenant, you and I, in a sense, actually sit there too, at the right hand of God, with the Lord Jesus Christ, because we are in him. 
And where he is, there we are too for that reason. So we are then closer already in the new covenant. In principle, we are closer to God through Christ than Adam and Eve ever were when they walked and talked with God in the garden. And you and I may think, well, wouldn't it be so much better for us? Wouldn't it be wonderful if every evening God could come down into your dining room and and sit with you at the dinner table and, and converse with you and you could see something, you could see some manifestation of his glory and you think if if I could do if we could only do that, all my problems would disappear. But you see what we've got is actually more than that. Already what we've got is more than that. And the trouble is that sin, our own sin, interferes with our enjoyment of that, of what we have, and our vision of it, our our, um, belief in it. In the next life, the sin will all be removed. And when that happens, all that clouds our appreciation and befuddles our senses so that we, we have trouble laying hold of this truth, all of that will be gone, and then we will see so clearly how much closer Jesus Christ brings us to God. Closer even than the walking and talking that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. It's better than Eden. Closely related to that, John says that the first things must pass away. They must be cleared away. All of those first things that came not long after the creation of the world with the fall, all of that sin and rebellion and immorality and misery and pain, verses 4 and 8 especially refer to this, all of that will be undone. It's all removed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I said, that's hard to visualize. Paradise or paradise restored with no sin. No more pride, no more selfishness. You'll never speak another harsh word to anyone. No more lust, no more exploitation, no more pain, either physical pain, people on quad bikes breaking their legs and such things, no more of that. No more uh, emotional pain, no more spiritual pain. God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people. And that implies too, and scripture says, no more death, nothing to cause us grief, no more death for man or beast. And that's so hard to imagine, it's so different. But what Revelation is doing, what this vision is doing, is to help us imagine the unimaginable and to visualize something that is so far outside of our experience. However, however, once again we may ask, how is paradise restored better than the original paradise in this regard? Before the fall there was no sin, there was no death, there was no pain, no tears, no grief, no misery. How can one situation without sin be superior to another? Well, remember that in the garden there was also a tree of life. And that life represented the confirmation of eternal life and righteousness for man if Adam and Eve had passed the test that God set for them, the test of perfect obedience. Well, as you know, they did not pass that test and they never got to eat of that that fruit from the tree of life. 
They were given, they had the ability to choose either good or evil and they made the wrong choice and they suffered for that and we have been suffering for that ever since and we've added our own problems to that as well. Eternal life was lost and the only way to get it back again was through the Lord Jesus Christ. And even then, for those of us who have that life through Jesus Christ, even for us, like Adam and Eve, we are still in this situation that we can choose good or evil on any one day. And we face those choices every day. And sadly, we so often make the wrong choice and choose that which is evil, even though we're Christians. But in the next life that possibility will go. We will no longer be in a position in the next life where we have the option of choosing and the ability to choose evil. There will be no more wrong choices for us. It will not even be possible. No more temptation, no more doubts, no more falling into sin. And brothers and sisters, don't you long for that. If you're a Christian, you ought to long for that most earnestly for that situation where those things will not even be a possibility and where that old nature will not come back and bite us again and again as it does every day. And if we're Christians, if we're serious Christians, we ought to lament that fact and to long for this day when that will no longer even be a possibility, let alone a reality. Long for the clearing away, the utter clearing away of the first things. Revelation 22 verse 2 mentions that tree of life and the availability then of its fruit and also its leaves for the healing of the nations. Here in Revelation 21, as also in chapter 22, we have a related symbol, the water of life in verse 6. We will drink freely from the springs of the water of life without cost. And that language implies a full and a constant and a permanent supply of spiritual and eternal life without any holding back or any interference ever again. Which in turn points to a completely full satisfaction in and of the life of Jesus Christ who is the bread and the water of life without anything whatsoever to interfere in it. Remember what the Lord Jesus said to the woman at the well. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. From John 4 verse 14. Adam and Eve enjoyed sweet waters in the Garden of Eden. Uh, waters that were completely unpolluted. New Zealand likes to think it's green likes to think that the waterways are clean and pure compared to Europe and North America and so on, but it's not that good as we've been reading lately in the papers. Adam and Eve had it better. They had pure, uncontaminated and sweet waters in the Garden of Eden, but the water that we have from Christ in the new heavens and the new earth will be even better. It will be a greater water and a greater and freer supply without cost for those who are God's people. Now, no one image can adequately portray that which is so far beyond our present experience. 
And so in the second and final place, the Lord gives John a vision also of a new city, of Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem, a better city. The city in our present experience is something that not always has such pleasant connotations. We often think of the city as a place of pollution, as a place of vice, Uh, far more likely that there are certain parts of Wellington you don't want to go to in the wee hours of the morning compared to places out in the open country. We think of the uh, city as a place of overcrowding, of uh, heavy traffic and uh, ineffective bypasses, but uh, that's the negative side of the city, but it's, it's not all bad. Cities are not all bad. The idea of a city in the scripture also implies permanence and stability, and especially when you compare it with a tent, a tabernacle, and the idea of a nomadic existence. It implies safety and security with its high walls and many people over against marauding enemies on the outside, wild animals as well. It provides the opportunity for fellowship with the the close contact that you have with such a, a large number of other people. And it even implies sometimes a sense of beauty and orderliness, can do. Uh, Not all buildings are monstrosities and Wellington can uh, brush up pretty well on a fine clear day. So cities do have their positive side. In the book of Revelation there are actually two cities and one of them brings out the positive side and uses these positive aspects in a symbolic way for Uh, to present the idea of something good and beautiful. And it also has another city that brings out the negative side and uses the negative side of the city to say something else. In Revelation, the positive city, the good city, is the New Jerusalem. Contrasting Babylon, the evil city, that represents worldliness, the sin of fallen society under the sway of the devil. Babylon, that other city, in the book of Revelation, is the whore, dressed to kill. The new Jerusalem, far from being a whore, is presented as the wife, the bride, the bride and wife of the Lamb. And she is also dressed up in this chapter here in Revelation. And she's dressed up, not dressed up to kill like Babylon. She's not dressed up like a tart. But she is dressed up looking radiant and glorious. Her natural beauty being brought out in a a chaste and a holy way and a glorious way as she is depicted as coming down from heaven and being on this great and holy mountain. This is her wedding day that is being presented here. And uh, perhaps especially some of the ladies look back on their wedding photographs and they think, uh, wow, did I, did I actually look that, that good on that day? Especially as you get older, you look back on those photos and you say, did I look that, that nice on that day? How is that possible? But this, um, this woman, she is presented as looking really fantastic on her wedding day. This is her wedding shot. Here comes the bride. And she's pictured here as walking down the aisle in her white gown, covered in precious jewels. 
This uh, picture is given here in order that God's people learn to turn our eyes away from the tart, to turn our eyes away from Babylon and start looking at the wife and seeing her beauty in this chaste beauty in all its glory with these gemstones and so on. Uh, Gemstones also referred to briefly in Genesis 2 verse 12 where also it implies the wealth and value and the beauty of the Garden of Eden where there was gold in the rivers. This wealth and this value and this beauty we also have a foretaste of in Jesus Christ. But in the next life, there will be no sin to dim our eyes to it and to dull our hearts and senses to it. In the next life, we will be able to appreciate beauty as never before. And we will be able to recognise and to appreciate value and wealth, true value, as never before. We will have a perfect aesthetic sense, uh, appreciation of art and beauty. And uh, these days, if you've ever been to an art gallery, if you uh, find the same thing that I do, you find that there is uh, a mixture of appreciation and uh, enjoyment of some things, but it's also mixed in with a bit of boredom. Some of the items on display you look at and you wonder why it's there. Uh, Also a sense sometimes of distaste. Certain things are not attractive at all. Personally, I'm not a great fan of some of the more modern trends in art, but some people like that uh, a little more. But some of those items I look at and I find quite distasteful. And some of the items on display, um, as we read about in the papers over the last few years, have uh, drawn protests and been downright obscene and blasphemous. And all of that is mixed in with our experience of art in a fallen world. But in the next world, all of the boredom will be gone, all of that which is ugly will be gone, all of that which is obscene and blasphemous will be gone, and we will have, if you like, perfect art, perfect beauty, and a perfect appreciation of it in that world. Which is to say that nothing will get in the way of us seeing the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing will get in the way of us seeing the richness and the wealth that he supplies to his people and enjoying that and seeing it reflected in all his creation. Notice also the details here. There's a lot of detail given about the city's measurements. And uh, we find as we look at those measurements that, uh, well, it certainly appears to be a town that's well planned, good city planning careful architecture, but of course there's a point being made, these measurements are symbolic and as with most Bible symbolism, commentators sometimes disagree on what it actually signifies, but I want to briefly suggest a few things to you, some of it's uh, very clear from the text, 12 gates representing Old Testament Israel, 12 tribes that is, 12 foundation stones in the wall representing the 12 apostles, the New Testament church, a wall of 144 cubits, 12 by 12, the church of all history, Old and New Testament, three gates on each of four sides, north, south, east and west, representing free access to all the peoples of the world, of every tribe and tongue, Jew and Gentile alike. 
all who turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and come in from the four corners of the globe with free access. And also in verse 16, the perfect cubic measurements of the city resembling the Holy of Holies, which was also a cubic shape in 1 Kings 6 verse 20, emphasising the holiness of this city. And then the angel's gold measuring rod indicating that the Lord has all of this under his control, all of these details and what they stand for, every centimetre of this city utterly accounted for by God and secure under his plan and rule. So safe and so secure that the gates never need to be shut to keep out enemies or wild animals. Now here again with these symbols... We are really being told about the nearness of God, the intimacy of God with his people in the new creation. Jerusalem, the Holy Mount, the Holy of Holies, these things speak of God's close presence with his people. They're symbols that represented that from the Old Testament. So so closely present is God with his people that according to verse 22, There will be no need of a literal temple in this city because God himself, the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In other words, that God in Jesus Christ has come far closer to his people than ever God came to his people in the Old Testament with the temple and the most holy place and so on there. Similarly, there is no need of any light, light source in this vision. Uh, No sun or moon, verse 23, because all the light comes from the Lamb of God. In other words, Jesus Christ is the source of all spiritual blessing, of all life, and also of all light and knowledge of God, of communion with him. And this too is an improvement on the first creation where sun and moon gave their light and an improvement on the old Jerusalem. And again, that improvement has to do with the difference that Jesus Christ makes through his coming, making a difference to our knowledge of God and our closeness to him. Of course, in such a setting where the light of the Lamb burns so so brightly, and where we come so directly into the presence of a holy God, there can be nothing unclean. And there can be nothing that is of the darkness as opposed to being of the light. No one who practices abomination or lying, no devils, no reprobate persons, and no more sin than God's people either. Only God's elect, his elect people and angels, those whose names are written in the, book of, in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, and who are therefore completely cleansed of all their sin. Now if you read chapters 21 and 22 as a unit, and I would suggest that, that is a good way to read them, you find that you have to wait until the conclusion of this heavenly vision in chapter 22 to discover how we are supposed to apply all of these things that we've heard about the nature of this new Jerusalem. 
But if we may jump ahead to chapter 22, verse 11 and 14 briefly, and apply that to what we've read here, then we come up with two main applications from those verses. First of all, let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. This arises out of the chapter we've looked at because there is no place for you as a bride dressed in white and adorned with these gems and there is no place for you as a citizen of this new city if you have no interest in holiness and no practice of it. Practice means an ongoing and regular and daily habit not just an occasional dipping into the things that you regard as God's laws, but a solid and heartfelt practice. And if you have no interest in that, and if you prefer things that lie outside of the city, and if you prefer not the bride in white, the wife of the lamb, but the great whore, Babylon, if you prefer that, then God will surely give you what you prefer. He will give you what you wish in terms of the location of where you really want to live. He will let you live there. The second main application here is that it lies in this statement also from chapter 22, Blessed are those who enter these gates. And congregation, the world will tell you that you're not blessed. The world will tell you that you're an idiot with a pipe dream of pie in the sky. And when you suffer from sin or misery or any affliction, whether it be illness or whatever else, financial problems and all the rest, when you suffer from those things, the devil will tell you you are not blessed. You are cursed and there is no blessing and there is no blessed city or life to come. And when the devil whispers those things to you, we are being told and reminded here, don't believe that for a minute. Because in Christ, all blessing and life and light are already yours in principle. And a few short years away, because that's really all it is, those of you who are older, I'm sure know that the older you get, the faster a year seems to go. And uh, from that perspective, and certainly from an eternal perspective, it's only a very, very short time away for any of us. A few short years away, and you will enter those gates and see that glory and that beauty and that holiness. You will see the bridegroom and the bride, and you will see not only with the eyes of faith, but you will see these things actually manifested. You'll drink the water of life, and you will bask in the light of the Lamb, if you overcome. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my Son. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, when the confusion and the pain of living gets too much for us, the, uh, also the, uh, the immorality and the unbelief and the lies and the murders and the abominations that surround us, 
the problems that come from sin and the curse of a fallen world and these things that also affect our own lives and our families and our churches as well as the world. Father, help us to turn again to this, this vision of a new world where there is no sin or pain or tears or misery or death. Father, help us to turn to this vision and to be refreshed by it. Would you enable us to keep to the spiritual realities behind this vision, to keep them before us at all times? The nearness of our God and your transforming power through the work of Jesus Christ. Father, may, may those truths govern the way that we live at all times, and not only at those times when we are particularly aware of the pain and the misery. We ask it for the sake of your glory and we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.